with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Coast. It's The Brief. This is our weekly show about politics. I am your co-host, Marcos Molitsis. I am here with Carrie Ellaveld. Today, we're going to be talking about the youth vote. When an election is as tight as the one in 2020, from the presidency on down to myriad House races, Senate races, to the runoff election in Georgia, everyone is the reason that we won. In Georgia, for example, the Latino population is small, but their turnout was within the margin of victory. Biden won the state by 11,000 votes. Same with the Asian community, black voters, urban voters, women including white women in the suburbs who used to vote Republican. There's a lot of credit to go around. But it also means that we need to do heavy lifting to keep winning and turning out that vote. If one of those groups feels disaffected or neglected, our thin, and it's very thin, our thin winning coalition becomes seriously in danger. Today, we are going to look at the youth vote, how important it was in 2020, how critical it will be in 2022 to have any chance of retaining control of both chambers of Congress, much less in a ideal situation, increasing our margins, uh, our majorities in those chambers so that we can have one that makes Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema Maybe not obsolete, but at least irrelevant. We would get rid of the filibuster. We can make D.C. a state. We can get real voting reforms. So those are the things that are on the table. And to make that happen, we need the everybody to turn out. But in that bucket, we need the youth about to turn out. So to talk about that later on in the show, we're going to have Ben Wessel. He's a former executive director of Next Gen America, an organization focused on the youth turnout. So... We have <laughs> – this is going to be a difficult task, Carrie. And really, when we talk about a winning coalition, like our coalition is fragile. Oh, so yeah. many critical pieces to it, and we can't lose any of it. And that's right. the mean, danger that we have. That's danger, of course. I mean, the, the good news is that Republicans aren't competing for any of our coalition. <laughs> so no. so it's about it's about us, like, making sure that we keep them engaged and getting them out to vote. But it's not like Republicans are like, gee, maybe if we did this, this could, you know, win over a few more persuasion votes. I mean, that's just not a thing. Like, Republicans just don't believe in that anymore and just have, you know, decided that their, you know, minority rule is their, is their way of the future. So, yeah, I don't. Well, I mean, definitely they're doubling down on minority rule. That's why they're working so hard to create voting impediments in so many states to keep people from voting because they don't want to actually have to work. <laughs> to no, win no. Young voters or Latinos or or black voters or suburban coming voters with, coming up with new ideas. Voters. So no way. No new ideas. New ideas. Speaking of no, new ideas, though, <laughs> it's not policy idea. This is a the policy. That would be crazy, right? No, no, no. Their new idea is if House Republicans take the majority next year, that they will try to make Donald Trump Speaker of the House. Now, you may be asking yourself, how could Donald Trump be Speaker of the House? He's not a member of the House, and there is no indication that he would run for a seat. 
I know the Kevin McCarthy is asking himself, how could Donald Trump be Speaker of the House <laughs> when I'm going to be Speaker of the House if we win the majority? That's what McCarthy is saying on the inside. On the so, inside, he is freaking out. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, this Please. is a fun fact of American constitutional law. Not even law, just the American Constitution. There is no qualification to be Speaker of the House. Anybody can be Speaker of the House if they get the votes. You got to still win an election for Speaker. And historically, Ted Cruz has gotten votes from the Crazy Caucus in the past. Colin Powell has gotten votes, for, uh, protest votes in the past. So we've had non-members of the House get votes, and it's totally legit. Now, it's nobody's ever won as Speaker because, <laughs> you know, being Speaker, you got to build a coalition. You got to help people get elected. You, you, you collect some favors. You raise money. Uh, and it's just always been assumed that the Speaker would be a member of the House, but it's not required. And now we have a Republican Party that is utterly, I don't know, enraptured by Donald Trump. They, they can't function without <laughs> Donald Trump. And, and completely spineless. Completely, completely spineless. spineless. And so some wingnut radio, right-wing radio personality asked Donald Trump if he would be interested in being Speaker of the House. And, of course, not only did Donald Trump, you know, he's, he's like, what? I can make, you know, like, that sounds really interesting. He said something like that, like, sounds really interesting. But then Kevin McCarthy, who's a House Republican leader, admitted on Fox and Friends – that Donald Trump has talked to him multiple times about it. So you know it's kind of it's drilling into his head, and he, he he's going to start obsessing about it. And he doesn't want to do the work of becoming speaker, right? But he wants it handed to him like he's the king. He expects that. And so there is – And frankly, if he asks for it, he could easily he, – he might get it. I mean, you know, there is that's a not beyond reason. chance he can get it. It would depend on a couple of factors. It would depend on the size of the House majority. I mean, if we're talking a three-seat Republican majority, that likely won't happen. I mean, there's, there's, we had, what, 20 Republicans that voted to impeach the second time. So presumably a bunch of those will lose primaries. Some of them will be redistricted out. There'll be churn. But presumably enough will survive that if it's a narrow House majority, that Donald Trump wouldn't have the votes. But if it's, if it's a wave... And historically, the minority party picks up around 30 seats in the House in that first midterm of a new president. So if there was a historically analogous election, which means just it followed historical patterns, they probably would have the votes to make Donald Trump Speaker of the House. Now, and now, is, now is when I would like to jump in and challenge your, your original assertion that this is a fun fact of the American Constitution. Is it really fun? <laughs> is it? Or, or is it downright terrifying? That's what I want to know. Is it terrifying I mean, or fun? It wouldn't be terrifying if Colin Powell became Speaker of the House in a Republican <laughs> no, majority. No, we're talking about Donald Trump. It's not the, of the House. Yeah, no, it's not the Constitution that's terrifying. It's the fact that Republicans think and are openly contemplating, and Donald Trump is clearly promoting privately 
this idea that he would make sense. And he, there's, there's actually a fantasy. There's, there's actually a plan. Let me tell you the plan because this is – I mean, you think this, are, this is already nuts. It gets even more nuts. This is from Steve Bannon. Do you all remember Steve Bannon? Should be in prison, but he was, he was pardoned by, by Trump. He's actively promoting this, this whole Donald Trump, obviously, Donald Trump as a as Speaker of the House. And what he says is that Donald Trump would come in, but only for 100 days. And he would use those 100 days to pass policy. And we, we could all laugh, <laughs> right, pass policy. But also impeach Joe Biden because, um, Steve Bannon says, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Because it's just ran, yeah. Let's it's it is what it you know. Let's just impeach because that's what happened they, to Trump. There was no reason they for the did it to us, and so we're going to do it to them. Right. Oh, so they're going to so Trump is going to come in, and in a hundred days, he's going to pass this sweeping new Republican agenda, and then he's going to impeach Joe Biden, and then he can hand things over to McCarthy so that Trump could run for president. If they that, impeach Joe Biden, do we get to have an insurrection? At the Capitol, do the Democrats get to have an insurrection in order to, like, you know, if they impeach him? Since since Donald Trump had to impeach in order to be, or had right. to have the insurrection in order to be impeached, and it's so big I, deal. Right? I'm I'm wondering if we retroactively get to have an insurrection because because Carrie, it, it wouldn't be an insurrection; it would be like just going on vacation. <laughs> we would be just like tourists. A national day of tourism at the Capitol. At the Capitol. <laughs> that is what we would do. So, yeah. but, you know, this is this is real. This is a thing. Trump is speaker. It's a thing. And we haven't seen Donald Trump speak about this publicly yet. And today, his spokesperson denied that Trump wants to be speaker, which, you know, how many times did they try to gaslight us during the Trump presidency where Trump would say something and the spokesperson would be like, Trump never said that, even if it was on video. So clearly it's a thing that people are asking about, they're talking about. It's uh, Steve Bannon and other, you know, I'm sure Michael Flynn, that crowd is, is heavily pushing this in those circles. And Trump just loves the idea of being in the center of attention. And so we have this really interesting dynamic Carrie, and, and both of us have written about this, that the reason an incumbent president loses an average of 30 seats in the House is because that midterm election, that first midterm election, becomes a referendum on that brand new president. And given how our system works or doesn't work because of the filibuster and you know all sorts of checks and balances, the people that elected – that president end up being demoralized and the opposition is activated, right? That's why we had the Tea Party. That's why we had the resistance against Donald Trump. And so that is normally what drives those big historical swings in power in the House. Uh, so to just reiterate, you need a demoralized base for the majority and you need an energized base for for you know for the minority but we've written about this we're this is looking a little different right we don't have a mass uprising against joe biden and if they want to put donald trump on the ballot figuratively could that again make this a referendum on donald trump 
therefore motivating our voters like they did in 2019, 18, 17, and the Georgia runoff. Trump is by far a bigger motivator for our people than, I mean, this is why, this is why Joe Biden won the election is because Trump is a bigger motivator for both Democrats and anti-Trumpers than he actually is for pro-Trump Republicans. So, you know, I mean, I, I think, look, we, we have also talked about how we are in a historical time. So we, we don't know no one, no one would have said, oh, yeah, Democrats are going to win those two runoff elections in Georgia in January. Right. The Senate elections. No one. No one was betting that. I mean, no, if, if, if anyone had said in, say, like last year, this time last year, I think Democrats are going to end up winning both those Senate seats in Georgia. People would have laughed them out Harry, of the room. I wrote that and people did laugh at me. I laugh oh. at you regularly. So I'm sure yes, I laughed yes. when you no, wrote that. No, I'm I actually thought we'd win more Senate races so I can brag about getting Georgia right. And then we can look at Kansas and Montana and you can laugh at me getting those wrong. So I'm not saying I'm some kind of perfect savant. No, I got lucky. Yes. Good, good lucky. That's the type of lucky yes. we like. It's good lucky. But so you should write more of those pie in the sky pieces because we, we need them. Put it out in the universe and see what comes back at us. But, you know, I, so I just think like there's no way we have any way of knowing what we do know is, you know, Biden's just real talk for a second. Biden's approval rating was humming along right around mid 50s, right? 54, 55 percent based on the 538 compilation and the aggregate. And now he's ticked down a little bit. He's, he's, he's more like low fifties. It's not crazy. It's just, we're seeing a little bit of a, you know, a few points starting to couple points, few points here and there starting to drop off. Okay. I think that, you know, what, what we want, of course, is Biden, since it's going to be a referendum on Biden, what we want, of course, is for his approval rating to stay as high as possible. So any approval rating he has right now is neither here nor there in terms of the overall picture when we get to, you know, a year and a half from now. But it does suggest that there's a little bit of a cooling off in terms of, you know, as as negotiations over the jobs and infrastructure bill drag on, as, you know, Democrats aren't able to deliver on the voting rights bill, at least not yet, you know, a, a number of things like that. That, that it might not be, you know, that, that a little bit of the honeymoon period, whatever honeymoon period there was, is starting to just wane a touch, right? So I also don't think that there's going to be, you know, wide swings back and forth, hopefully, the way we used to have. It just our electorate isn't like that anymore. So, you know, what, what I also think, so we can't, the other thing we can't account for is, the November elections happened before the January 6th in- insurrection. They happened before the this full-on broadside attack on democracy by Republican-led legislatures across the country. They happened before uh, it happened before uh, Biden had President Biden, his White House, his administration had gotten the pandemic largely under control. So, you know, there's nothing normal about what we have now between that between last November and the 2022 election midterm election. And I just I, I, you know, 
I hesitate to say we know anything about anything at this point, other than these are very ahistorical times. I, I have a hard time believing that we're going to end up, you know, getting having a thir- some sort of, sort of thirty sweet seat, thirty seat, you know, win for Republicans. The state of their party at this point is they have watched Donald Trump repel enough people to lose the presidency, enough people, even their own people who voted down ballot for Republicans, but voted against Trump at the top. And they have seen that and said, we want more Donald Trump. He's going to be our guy and we're going to do more of him, not less of him. We're going to become him as a party, which is what they've done. And I just don't think there's any precedent for any of this. Like, we, no, we just don't know. No. They are going out of their way to make 2022 a referendum on Donald Trump. And now we're, they're literally going to put him on the ballot. Now, figuratively put him on the ballot that if they win the House, Donald Trump becomes speaker. There is, I guess, some logic to that. And that logic is that their turnout is higher when Donald Trump is literally on the ballot. They can actually show up and vote for him. Can they get some of that turnout by promising Speaker Trump? Can the Trump deplorables, the hidden deplorables, can they make that connection that they're not literally voting for Donald Trump, but they're voting to make Donald Trump Speaker? I don't know. That seems maybe a lift too hard. Are you you telling me that Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be Speaker so bad, he like wakes up in the morning thinking about it as soon as consciousness hits his little brain and goes to bed at night and as soon as his, with his head hitting the pillow and dreams of speakership pop up, dream clouds pop up from his brain. Do you, do you really think that Kevin McCarthy is going to go around making the pledge? Because you can tell that he isn't super fond of this idea based on how he responded to that question. Yeah, he told Trump that he wanted Trump to be president and he was like going to be speaker if they went. He yeah. like told Trump to back off, but in a way that maybe Trump is okay with by saying, but you can still be president. So, so I just can't imagine. I mean, this would be one more thing that would throw a wrench in their, in their 2022 message, right? If Trump starts talking about this incessantly, I mean, it, God only knows that Mitch McConnell does not want Trump as Speaker of the House, right? That's right. one more huge headache for him, whether they take the majority in the Senate or not. And I just can't imagine that Kevin McCarthy is going to go around making the pledge that, sure, if we win the majority, I'm going to hand the speakership over to Donald Trump. I cannot imagine in a million years that he will do that. So that will just be one more you know, schism, friction. one more yeah. piece of consternation and friction in the in the Republican Party. Absolutely. This this can't this. No, this can't. This is not a positive development for them. And we haven't seen Trump talk about this publicly yet. So this will be interesting to see if he actually starts using it as part of his whatever errands or grievances that he does at his rallies. He will be going on tour with Bill O'Reilly, funny enough, later in the year, I think starting in November. And so that would be if he's it, he'll have all summer to like stew on this and to, you know, and see if he really likes it. I'm, I know. God, man, can you imagine him Mike starting Lindell. a campaign on that? Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is going to be. And actually, if we get a chance to make 2022 about Donald Trump, like we did in 2018, our chances of surviving this and maybe even increasing our majorities 
are dramatically higher. And I will never understand, we've talked about this before, we've both written about it, why they insist on sticking with a person who's been deplatformed, who people have, like his blog was a total, dis- like a hilarious disaster. Uh, and people have moved on and the Republican Party just can't quit him. So, so Carrie- I know, I know you want to do this, but before we do, let's handicap Trump as Speaker of the House. You've thought on, on, the, on a scale from Trump getting reinstated in August as president, which is zero chances, right? On a scale from zero to Trump becoming Speaker of the House, what are the chances at 100%? That's zero to 100%. Okay. What are the chances? I would say chances of Republicans taking the House are probably 50-50. I should say like 60-40, but it's so – I mean, in a normal year, it would be like 90-10, but this is such a weird political climate that I actually think we have a fighting chance. I really honestly do. So I would say 50-50, maybe 60-40 uh, Republicans. And then it becomes a question of how big that majority is. So either they're going to get the wave. I, I actually – I don't think they're going to claw a bunch of like seats and get like plus five. You know, I, I think either sentiment – our base is going to shut down and they crush us or our base will turn out and we survive and maybe – we can, we're not going to win a massive wave election, but maybe we eke out an extra couple of seats from the Republicans. So I, w- I would say that if they win, they probably win big. And so I would put the chances at that point of in a Republican House, Trump being Speaker, maybe like 60-40. So if you all add up, it's probably a 30% chance, 25, about 25% chance, 25, 30% chance. That it actually you, you heard it happens. here, 25% chance. Yeah, Marco, Marcos Melitzis just did all the math for us. 25% chance, very statistically sound <laughs> no, but analysis. It's a, real, it's a real chance. It's a I real know. chance. Like we, we have learned, Carrie, as a movement, I hope, that we can't underestimate Donald Trump. Or, like, or the Republican Party. There's really yeah. just no bar low enough for the Republican Party. So If he decides he wants that and they get their wave... I think it's it's going to be pretty hard for for uh, for Republicans to not make him speaker. They'll know it's a disaster, but I don't see how they they resist him because they've shown no ability to resist him when he has no power. When he has no, no. I mean, audience. just just as a as as an example, the the most recent commission, the January sixth commission, they laid out yeah. their you know their criteria for that. The Democrats said, "Okay, here's your criteria. We'll give you everything you want. And then Trump came out against the bill and said, I don't want the commission. And then Republicans killed it, even though Democrats met all their demands. So, you know, anyway, go ahead. Let's get let's bring in our guy. Yeah. So our guest today is Ben Wessel. He is formerly the executive director of Next Gen America, which was focused on turning out the youth vote the last several cycles. Ben's uh, he's actually kind of a, you know, we've known each other for a while, so I'm pretty excited to have you on. That's one of the smartest people in politics and especially so when it comes to youth vote. So I'm happy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to be a fly on the wall and just listen to you bitch and moan. I'm into it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if Trump becomes Speaker of the House... The bitch and moan quotient is going to be oh my off god. the charts. Oh you, you ain't seen nothing yet, Ben. I nothing believe it. yet. I believe it. <laughs> Terrifying and wonderful at the same time. Oh so, Ben, you had a front row seat at, at 
turning out and uh, and seeing how the youth vote performed in 2020 and, and how important it was. Sure. Can you sort of give us an overview of, of that, of, of uh, what maybe some of the numbers and how critical that was to Democratic victories in uh, 2020? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is no doubt that young voters are the ones who put Democrats over the edge, both in in the Senate races and the presidential. Um, young voters are sort of our largest, most diverse pillar of the Democratic coalition, which is really exciting. So when there's like a million different ways that you can carve up young as a 32 year old. I like to say it's 18 <laughs> to 35 just to like keep myself in that nice warm bubble of youth, despite all the grays in my beard. Um, but, but young voters, when you think of 18 to 29, which is how the census thinks about it and all these smart professor types, we, we saw the highest turnout ever uh, of young people in the 2020 election. You know, everyone remembers 2008 was this big deal where the youth were enthused by Barack Obama and, and the big drum roll number for youth turnout in 2008 was about 51% of young people showed up. Um, and that was historic and it was amazing. And we're so proud of all the work we did. Well, this that, year in 20, 20- really a, a half full, half empty type of stat, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know totally, but it means Classic. we have so much good. There's so much potential by investing yes. in this cohort. Right. So we, we far surpassed that 51% turnout, depending on who you ask, we were somewhere between 53 to 56% of young people showed up. And, and part of the reason that's so interesting is because these young people, not surprisingly are very democratic leaning and they supported Joe Biden by, by huge numbers. The numbers we, we see, um, the best estimate is about 61% of those young people voted for Joe Biden compared to 36% who voted for Donald Trump. And that was a huge improvement over 2016, right? In 2016, about one in 10 young people voted for a third party candidate, which meant Hillary only got 55% of the youth vote. And so that jump from, from 55 to, to 61 or 62, depending on who you ask, that's a game changer. And in states like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Wisconsin, where it's like tens of thousands of votes, those additional votes from new young people who showed up and from young people who were, were Stein voters or, or were Gary Johnson voters who came home to the Democratic Party and voted for, for Joe Biden – often, you know, holding their nose and saying, who cares? I don't know. That's the difference maker. And and it, it, it helped us down ballot uh, in, a, in a million different examples. You know, Mark Kelly in Arizona certainly helped with the Ossoff and Warnock uh, races in January. It, it was a big deal. So young people crushed it. And I was proud to have a front row seat, as you said. Let's just, I, let's bring up a graphic we have. It's a tweet that you sent out. Ooh, just yeah. to give people Visual, yeah, one of your tweets, okay? You said yeah. on this graphic, and you were talking about the share of the vote, right? And let me just run through these numbers real quick because we, we have a podcast uh, audience, too, eventually. And uh, just people like to tune in to hear my voice, Ben. As you can hear, it's very it's the dulcet <laughs> I tone. like to tune in to hear your right. voice, <laughs> So in 2008, what this shows, uh, this graphic shows, it's a bar graph, right? 2008. Millennials and Gen Z voters, uh, youth voters, accounted for for 14% of the vote that year. And last year, that number more than doubled to millennials and Gen Z voters accounting for 31% of the total vote in the country, right? Meanwhile, you've got Boomers, which have always been sort of the juggernaut, you know, generation, right, of voters. Very Republican. 
very Republican, starting to fall off a cliff. I mean, it's not quite a cliff, but it's it's starting to look cliffy to me at some point. But, you know, boomers and older folks account uh, accounted for 61 percent of the vote in 2008. They counted for 61 percent of the vote. But by 2020, they counted for just 44 percent of the vote. So at the same time that you have these this stepladder of the millennials and Gen Z's getting up to 31 percent of the vote last year, you have boomers and older and people older than that falling down to just 44 percent of the vote. And I just wonder, Ben, to get back to you now, what what do you see in those numbers? I mean, at what point is our, our could this generation surpass boomers, et cetera? Oh, I think it'll happen in the next two, four, six years. I mean, we. Whoa. Sorry, sorry that for one older. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. It's actually incredibly <laughs> optimistic. Well, we're in this really interesting time where you know millennials, which I'm a proud millennial, even though somehow it's an insult. Uh, millennials are are already the the consumers that dictate corporate strategy. They're the um, content consumers that dictate cultural media, um, and finally, millennials are becoming the main political generation, the folks that you have to think about when you're making political decisions. And part of that is because millennials are so big. It's a generation 70 million strong in this country that, you know, our parents were the baby boomers and then they had babies and that's like a boom times a boom. And so for us, we're that core constituency that I think corporate America and cultural America has been thinking about a lot. And now political America recognizes we 2020 was really our coming out party. Um, and we're, we're in this moment where you have to appeal to the millennial generation in order to get anything done in a world where majority rules. Hence, right. as you guys were mentioning earlier, the Republican Party is not interested in this majority rule world. And they'd like to, to appeal to a smaller and smaller sliver of an older and older electorate to keep themselves in power. So right. very soon, a.k.a. now, this decade, is when the downfall of the boomer and older coalition dictating what happens in our politics happens, which is, and, I think, great. Great, right? I'm on board with you. Just to also add in where Gen, Gen Xers work, because I'm a Gen Xer, Gen Xers have been cooking along at like 25, 26% flatlining. So, so millennials and Gen Z voters already surpassed how much a share of the vote Gen Xers are accounting for, uh, just right. so you, just so you know, right? So we're just like we're just there. We're the smaller generation of like X, we're yeah. counting it, for 25, 26 percent. are very, they're very. It's a very swing demographic, and not swing. It's very split demographic. If you look at how right. Xers vote, it's like a 50-50 Republican Democrat. You look at the older generations are heavily Republican. So, you know, not even close. And then those young generations are, are ridiculous. And in civics, you know, our polling data firm, we, we track, we have a 50 state tracker on, on Donald Trump approval, Joe Biden approval. And if only young people voted, man, this would be, you know, I think there's four states left where young people are a majority Republican at this yeah. point. I think it's West Virginia. Yeah, y'all, the Wyoming. Republicans can have like young Wyoming and young Arkansas. <laughs> right. Maybe North Dakota, I think, is one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there is this, this obvious shift, uh, obvious shift underway. I actually was really interested to hear you talk about how this millennial generation is sort of driving corporate preferences. I hadn't even considered that. And, and I was just looking at the National Review, which is a conservative magazine, mm. and their cover story is woke 
corporate America. And they're, they're crying about how woke Nike and all these, you know, <laughs> sure. you see it in Georgia, where corporations are being, you know, are being driven to take stances on social issues. And of course, conservatives who loved it when corporations backed them up, you know, now are, are you know, just heavy, heavy tears. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I actually hadn't fully made that connection. And there's something there that I'm sure you can speak to. Yeah, it's it's a really big shift. I think everybody is used to seeing maybe a celebrity PSA that's like, go vote, it's your duty. But we're entering an era where Coca-Cola is going to actively register voters because that's what their consumers expect of them. You know, we're, we're I you know, for good or for bad, we're entering a time where corporate conversation in the civic space um, really matters because they can reach so many people. And this is, of course, really important when we talk about, you know, how our tech platform is going to engage with politics, how are how are these big media behemoths going to start sort of feeling like they have a responsibility or not to get people out to vote. The thing that I that I find most interesting is that, you know, as a political movement, we often forget that, like, you know, corporate boycotts or corporate social responsibility, that can be one of our best legislative tools, right? If we can get companies on board, for example, with pushing for for a clean energy package, it's a good way to move some of these swing legislators who won't listen to the people, but they'll listen to their corporate benefactors. And so I'm optimistic about the role of young people coming in and pushing these companies. I'm optimistic about the young people who work at these corporations saying we have to do things differently. But corporations have let me and the rest of us down many, many times. So but, fingers crossed. So, so let me so let me ask a question related to that, right? Sure. So first of all, these corporations, right? Number one, they're marketing to yeah. the younger voters. Number two, they want the talent pool to be working for them of the younger right. voters, especially in terms of coding and digitally totally. and all that stuff, right? So they have so they have to come off as progressive. I'm excited about the idea of them as you say, getting out there and maybe having to register voters in order to like, you know, put some skin in the game. Right. But at the same time, these corporations in particular, Coca-Cola, I don't know the numbers, but they give a lot of money to Republican lawmakers. So how do they, how do they square? I mean, are they anywhere even close to being held accountable or how do we hold them accountable for talking out of both sides of their mouths or conversely, this is a complicated question, Are the, is it helpful to have them going in and saying, look, you guys can't do this stuff. We give you a ton of money. And if you do this, I'm just telling you, it's going to be impossible for us to continue supporting you because you suck so bad. <laughs> I think the thing that we can count on is that corporate America is going to do what's best for corporate America. Right now, they've decided that um, they can play both sides. They'll max out checks to Democrats and Republicans. And that is way cheaper than ending up on the wrong side of the conversation. Right. And so I don't expect them to do anything that's not profit seeking. Right. They're going to continue to, you know, like. Corruption pays off. It's like pretty easy to write a little check to a senator and then have them not regulate you or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a matter of like young people coming into these companies and changing the way that these companies do business or try to. I think there's all sorts of 
cool and interesting policies that we can have. I mean, this is totally not my area of expertise at all, but like, you know, what if we mandated worker seats on corporate boards, things like that to try and change corporate behavior. And those are the sorts of things that I think, um, and Marcos, you, I would love to see you pull some of this stuff. Like those are the sorts of things that I think are incredibly popular with young people across the board, Democrat, independent and Republican. And those you are the pull. sorts of, right. We'll do a youth poll. Let's, oh, do, let's a do a youth poll. poll. And it's one of those things that we see. It's so interesting. There are very few Republican young people, as you mentioned earlier, but they actually tend to agree with with Democratic leaning or, or independent young leaning young people, especially on on questions of corporate control. Right? We need to to break up big tech, for example, or we need to tax corporations at higher rates. It's it's an interesting and very different thing than than older conservatives. Um, and I think a lot of that is like those young people who like Donald Trump and they liked when he was rallying against corporate wokeness, you know, like mm. we can build some strange coalitions when, when Gen Z and millennials are, are the majority of the voters that we care about. So you talked earlier about how in, you know, previous cycles, there was a huge third party vote from mm. young people. And we know that young people don't have party allegiance the same way older people do. Does that mean that, is there a risk that we lose him back to the next Jill Stein? Is there a way to lock him into the Democratic Party in a way that, that they can be a reliable voting constituency? Or are they always going to sort of bedevil Democrats by by having that bit of, in, I don't want to say instability, in the, that's not the right word, unpredictability? Sure. I think it's this is this is a problem that's not going away anytime soon. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not sure if it's a problem or not. We see, like you mentioned, Marcos, party ID super decrease with young people that says, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm not an independent, I'm just them. And part of the reason is because they've never seen Democrats or Republicans or anyone else deliver anything for them, right? This is the generation that went through 9-11, wars battled on false pretenses, the economic crash, inability to buy a house, crippling student debt, all the things that you can imagine. Um, And so there's no sort of era of good feelings around a party. I think there's definitely, you know, folks who are my age, who our first election was 2008, there's definitely some residual, like, Obama was dope feeling, but it's more about Obama and less about Obama, the Democratic president. And so we see with young people a real willingness to try new things in a way that that older folks who came up, I'm a Democrat, I'm a, or, or I'm a Reagan Republican, or I'm a Kennedy Democrat, it just doesn't, happen sort of for our folks. And here's how that plays out, right? Bernie Sanders, hugely popular with young people, very famously refused to become a a capital D Democrat, um, both in 16 and 20. We, I think, can see some strange candidacies uh, for folks who, who try and run as independents who can really attract the youth vote. I'm less worried about a Jill Stein type who's coming sort of from the far left or, or purporting to be from the far left getting a significant chunk of voters. And I'm like more worried about the sort of like Elon Musk, cryptocurrency, burn it all down type people, because there's a lot of young people who feel like they have no opportunity in country. The country is run on a lottery and it's a crapshoot and they like to screw with it, you know? And so I think Democrats have luckily or unluckily, a really easy playbook to follow here, which is 
do popular things that young people want and then talk to young people about how we did all these popular things for you. Um, because that's how you start to build some allegiance to a party brand rather to an individual or a candidate. Can I just ask along those lines, why the hell hasn't the White House gone ahead and canceled $50,000 in student debt? And this is something I've written about several times now. It is you know, the older folks are all like, we paid off our own debt, blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying, you know, just to be clear. $6,000 that they paid for. Right. I I paid off my own debt too. I've only got like probably a few thousand dollars to go or whatever. Humble brag. And and I don't, yeah, I'm just letting you know that like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm shit. So no, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, this is such a no-brainer because we can't get anything through Congress at the moment. The White House can do this through the Education Act of, what, 1965 or something. The, 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 The Secretary of Education can do it, has the power why not do it? If someone's going to sue us to yeah. stop us, let the Republicans sue us to stop us. But like, why not yeah, as- make lives better for a whole generation of people that will also who will become more loyal to Democrats and be able to, to per- participate in the economy at a higher, better, better level? Totally. I One of the things that's like very predictable about Joe Biden is that he really likes to do things that seem like targeted and smart and like just. And so, you know, and as Joe Biden says, God love him. He's doing some really good stuff on canceling student debt for very niche sections of the population, right? Folks who got ripped off by for-profit schools or, or um, you know, they're investigating whether they can do something specific for students who went to historically black colleges and universities. And like, that's great. The piecemeal way of doing it, like rock and roll, the more people who lose, um, who don't have to pay back this like crippling student debt, the better. But that's, maybe Maybe that's like an interesting policy way of doing things. That is not how the political arm of this all works. We need grand sweeping gestures that will will reach people who are working two jobs to recognize, holy smokes, Joe Biden just did something awesome for me and literally everyone I know, rather than like a targeted piecemeal section 2B kind of approach to this. And so I think that there's a growing movement and um, there's lots of folks, you know, who are really recognizing this can be a powerful force, right? Folks who are who have student debt. And again, we're talking about in- interesting coalitions. You know, AARP and the National Re- Realtors Association are involved in student debt conversations now because young people or, or even Gen Xers are retiring and they still have their student debt or they can't afford a house because they're paying back their debt. So, so I think just- we're, we have a lot of movement building to do, but I think we can push Biden to do it and, and is the short answer. I just wanted to to point out that the National Association of Realtors is one of the most Republican special interest groups in our politics to give almost all their money to, to Republicans. They're as right wing as they come. So you saying that and I see obviously the obvious self-interest, right? You need totally. to have money to be able to buy houses. But for them to be aboard shows that there is a trans ideological coalition because it makes sense. And the only right. argument against it is that some people may feel like they got ripped off because uh, there's two I can think of. One, one is I paid off my student loans, not realizing that it was a lot cheaper to go to college sure. 50 years ago than it is today. And 
And the other option, the other argument I could see against it is that, you know, some rural conservative Republicans thinking that liberals are that their taxes are helping liberal children get ahead of their own children who didn't go to college. So that that sort of rural urban divide. But that divide exists. It's there. It's not going away. So screw them. Totally. And and like the thing that's interesting, it's not like we're. I think there's a lot of um, of those conservative Republicans will say, well, oh, you took out a loan from a bank and you have to pay back the bank. It's not the bank. Over a trillion dollars of the student debt is held by the federal government. Like they could just press the delete key somewhere in the Treasury building and like it goes away. It's not like we're not messing with the private sector or anything here. But the vast majority of the student debt is held by the government. And if we got rid of that, it would help so many people. (sighs) we've pulled this we've pulled this and among people of color young people of color it pulls between like 65 percent and 75 percent or something like that for for black folks and for uh latino uh folks it does for young people of color and it's a, one of the smartest and easiest ways to close the racial wealth gap in this country, yes. which is something that the Biden administration talks about on a daily basis. So, like, I think they get it. I think they're trying to figure out what are the politics on this. And as you all just explained, they're actually rather simple. And I think they're worried about they don't want to get sued up the wazoo. But guess what? They're going to get sued up the wazoo on everything. So, like, might as well do the things you want to do. No, and this is this one's worth fighting for. Definitely. So 2022 is coming up. We need the youth turnout. I mean, there's always a historical drop off in the midterms, but that's true for everybody. But as a percentage, it's even more. It's bigger among youth voters. How can Democrats avoid that drop off and avoid, as a result, uh, losing control of Congress? Because that would be the end of the Biden presidency, essentially. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's 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 a few, you know, Ben's three easy steps to make sure that young people show up in 2022. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. So if there's more than three, don't blame me. Um, so so the first thing, one of the reasons that I think we saw such expansion in the youth vote in 2018 and 2020 is election administration. Making it easier for young people to vote means that young people vote. Right. And so when you look at some of the numbers from COVID, the fact that every young person got mailed a ballot, just like every old person uh, in many states, meant that more young people actually could vote. Right. So there are so many simple, easy fixes, whether it's uh, automatic voter registration or mailing everyone a ballot that can actually make a real difference in turning young people out. Not surprisingly, Republicans don't want this to happen. And we have this, you know, legislative battle that you all have talked about at length about over the, the you know, Senate Bill 1 and, you know, reinstating some sense of normalcy or fairness in our elections. And I think the federal battle will rage on. But at the state level and at the county level, we see lots of great Democratic election administrators ensuring that it's easier for young people to access the ballot. I think my favorite example is in Michigan, where in 2018, we basically passed a ballot measure that would make it easier for young people to vote by automatically registering young people. Then we saw a huge spike in 2020. Now we have Jocelyn Benson, who's the Secretary of State, up for re-election in 2022, saying, hey, we need to make sure that everybody can continue to automatically register to vote and, and, and vote easily. And when that happens, you know, good things beget good things. So number one is election administration. I think a second thing that we have to do is pass popular policy and then tell young people about it, right? I think 
when you are broke, like many young people, you don't spend a lot of time, you know, hanging out, finding out uh, what just passed through Congress. And so the fact that even in, in the giant America's Rescue Plan, there are so many nuggets of gold um, for young people. For example, this expansion of the child tax credit, you know, young parents are basically getting $500 checks a month in some instances, and they might not really know about it. They probably don't follow Joe Biden on Twitter and check it on a daily basis. And he and didn't, so, they refused to put his name on the checks, which would be yeah. an obvious, easy thing to do. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, well, that's our, let's pull that question, see if we think he should do it. Um, <laughs> but I do think the number two, like, it's really, it's about doing popular things, which I think the Democrats are doing, and that would be case they can, and then bragging about right? Being out there loudly in interesting spaces, talking about it, right? Going in and I, I commend the White House. I think they've done a really good job, you know, identifying good social media influencers to help carry this message or really tapping into the cultural vein. So do popular things and brag about it, I guess, would be number two. And then number three, which is like kind of election campaigns 101, is register young voters, like, it is bananas how many people turn 18 every day and how many people forget that midterm elections can be won and lost in a congressional district by 1,000 votes. And they don't invest in these large-scale voter registration efforts. Um, they? They being massive donors, they being the Democratic yeah. Party, they being, um, you know, some of the, the, the do-gooder corporations out there, they just don't think of voter registration necessarily as their responsibility. But I think we could win almost every midterm and presidential election if we actually got off our butts and registered young people. Obviously, that's what Next Gen America, an organization I ran for years, does a lot. It's why we push for automatic voter registration in many of these states. Young people, once they're registered, they actually show up in pretty similar numbers of older people. The reason the turnout numbers for young people are so much lower than older people is because so few of them are registered. And and that's something that we can all do in our lives. I know I'm like a little hokey activist field organizer pitch right now, but we all know someone who's turning 18 or we know someone who knows someone who's turning 18 who isn't registering to vote. And so those are the three, I guess. Carrie, did I do three? I've got Yeah, you did you did three. <laughs> I'm not gonna subject anybody to my to my writing here, but number one was <laughs> election administration. Number two was do popular policies and brag about it. That's for the Democrats, of course. No no Republican bragging. And sure. uh, number three is register young voters. So that is that's the formula. And let me get back to number two, which is do the popular policy thing and brag about it, right? Let's let's sure. make sure we know that I'm on this kick of Jesus, do something for young voters. My goodness. So um, I, I, I had this one quote that I read in the Washington Post of a young voter who was explaining why he voted in 20, 2020. And I can't I think he was almost eligible to vote in uh, 2016. And he was like, well, you know, I, I, I don't really he, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, I could never really understand this whole idea of the filibuster and whatever. But then I saw our president losing his mind every day on Twitter. And I just thought I should get to the polls. <laughs> it's like, so my, which is, which is true, right? Like totally Trump true. motivated people, including young people to get to the polls. But my point is, is that for Democrats, it's not good enough to be loosely associated with good ideas that a lot of the millennial and Gen Z voters 
like. It's not good enough. You have to do something on the positive side of that. Some of those people got to the polls simply because Donald Trump scared the living crap yeah, out of them. Existential yeah. threat. But that existential yeah. threat is they think it's gone. It's not. Right. But they right. think it's gone. I, th- I think that's all spot on. I mean, I think one of the things is that for, again, young people, like I have never known in my life a functioning Congress, right? <laughs> Nobody, ex- and it's sad, but it's true. Nobody expects government to actually get stuff done, who's my generation or younger. And so when you can say we are breaking that cycle and we need your help to do it, that's when I think we can overcome some of the natural skepticism. It is, it's not apathy. It's skepticism or cynicism and start to give a little bit of, you know, hope that things can change. And I think like the, the best examples are going to be on climate action. If we can say, we understand this is a generational threat to your generation, we're going to take massive investment action on, on transitioning to a clean energy economy, which obviously Democrats are trying to do, one. Two, I think canceling student debt we recognize you're broke and that sucks and we want to find a way to make you less broke. And then third, by saying, uh, honestly, that we need to have a, a national reckoning on race and criminal justice and that uh, when Democrats are in charge, we actually make it easier to be a black person or a brown person in this country through policy X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that's so interesting about those things, some of that is Congress and some of that is your mayor or your city council. And so there's a lot of different levels where Democrats can actually do something and then go out and brag about it. And it's not this is like we have to remember the brag about it part because everybody thinks everyone watches C-SPAN all the time (laughs) if you live inside the Beltway. And it's nuts. And so there's so many good things that Democrats do. And Obama complains about this in his book. He's like, we did so many things and then the voters never heard about it. And it's like, yeah, bro, that's your job, too. And so we have to make sure that national Democrats are getting that done as well. The, um, you know, Republicans, you got your list and, and Republicans know this list, right? You talk about election administration. Obviously, they are directly targeting election administration. You talk about policy. They are systematically objecting to absolutely everything. And they have, mm-hmm. unfortunately, they have the, the help of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin in that, which is why the um, sort of just signing a check, you know, Biden unilaterally for giving $50,000 in student debt is so critical because we have a Congress where things are going to move slowly. They're going to get mm-hmm. watered down. It's just a reality. If anything passes at all, it's not going to be the best. Here's something that he can do by himself unilaterally, and, and he's afraid to do it. Or And so you need to find those places where you can make the grand gesture. That's the other thing. Democrats love their, their block right. grants and their tax right. you know, credits, and nobody – notice it's like tax credit on when they're doing their taxes because it's just computed automatically with their turbo tax or whatever they're using so that piece is making that grand gesture and, you, and republicans are doing everything possible to stymie that because they know that the youth vote is easy to suppress because right. it's a low performing group right. and uh if they turn out it's existential for them so right. And, and, and you also talk about young people, really, voters don't know what's happening, you know, and young people are, you know, are, they want to like, I, I got teens, right? They're, they're listening to music. They're trying to hook up. I mean, that's their life. And I, I'm good old people also listen to music and are trying to hook up. I'm just going <laughs> to say that it's important that we recognize that. I, I like that you finally recognize that you're an old person. <laughs> <laughs> that you, 
I don't think he was talking about himself. I think he was talking about actual old people. Okay. All right. (laughs) Everyone, everyone. You know, I'm just, I'm down for whoever wants to do whatever. Is there any (laughs) sense with, with those young people at all? I mean, do you get any sense that, that the Republican party is seen as actively working against their interests or is that sort of too abstract for, for broadly speaking, these younger generations? Yeah, well, that's a super good question. I mean, one of the things that is so interesting for young people that we've polled or that we've seen in focus groups is that Republican equals Trump and Trump equals Republican, right? And anything we can do to continue to marry those brands together, um, I think, is going to increase the odds of young people recognizing how much the Republican Party is out to get them. We have so many voters who are um, either first-time voters and 18 or 20 who voted for Democrats whose parents are Republican or who everyone they went to high school with is Republican. And that's who they think of when they think of what's a Republican. They think of, oh, okay, my my dad who worked hard all his life and sometimes says some racist stuff about immigrants. <laughs> like, that's that's a Republican to them. It's not Donald Trump and all these people who are screwing over our, our country, right? And so we have some branding work to do as a democratic party or as a progressives to ensure that folks really recognize who our opposition is, which is people that are less interested in having pluralist democracy than they are in letting Donald Trump and his family do whatever the heck they want. And so I have hope, but it doesn't happen naturally, right? It requires some real work. Um, and luckily the Republican party seems to be helping us. I mean, they've all, but Speaker Donald Trump? Their name. yeah, I know. <laughs> like, like, I think that there's a lot of work that could be done and that we have to do it in a way, like Carrie, you mentioned, that's not just about negative partisanship. It's not just you hate Republicans to show up to vote. It's you hate Republicans and Democrats are going to do some good things for you. So show up to vote. I think that's the way that we, we make the difference here. And I will say one other thing about this, which is like, I think gets lost in the conversation a lot about young people where we almost exclusively talk about turnout, but candidate support. We saw John Ossoff, and Raphael Warnock basically get like two thirds to almost 70% of young people to show up who showed up voting for them. Like that is like a real lopsided seesaw that we don't normally see in this country. And then when you look, I mean, Joe Biden won white young people. Like it's the only cohort of white people that Joe Biden won. And so, but it was by, it was like 51, 49. And so those little things that happen at the margin, obviously like turnout is the big sexy thing. And when you look at this largest generation ever, that's where your mind goes. But the, the candidate choice, the persuasion and making sure that those young people are still supporting Democrats or aren't defecting to Republicans, that's just as much work. And it's just as important in this margin game of a midterms. Let me just let me just repeat that. You said that in Georgia, 70 percent of the young voters who showed up in that uh, runoff voted for Ossoff and Warnock. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's basically the exit poll estimate. Wow. I mean, I mean, it's it pays to have candidates More that than look like you, too. Right. Having a young wow. like Don Ossoff was probably a big factor. But that's all the time we have. Unfortunately, this time flew. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, hopefully oh, we can check in with you later in the uh, in the year, maybe as the election season starts heating up and we can continue to take a look at this youth vote, how it's evolving, because it's going to be absolutely critical for our ability to win in 2022. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to y'all for doing the work. Appreciate it. Carrie, that's all the time we have. 
Thanks to Ben for joining us and being such an informative guest. Thank you, Carrie, for being such a great partner in this, uh, in this endeavor. Thanks to uh, Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. And thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be Absolutely. sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. That's daily K-O-S, K-O-S. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week.